Hello, and welcome to The Balance with Catlin Tucker, presented by StudySync. I'm Catlin Tucker. I'm a teacher, a coach, a blended learning expert with a particular interest in finding balance, which I talk about in my upcoming book, Balance with Blended Learning. Today, my guest is Lisa Highfield, who was a classroom teacher for over 20 years and currently works as a technology integration coach in Pleasanton Unified School District. Lisa is the epitome of a lifelong learner. She's a Google certified innovator, a YouTube star teacher, a merit fellow, and a leading edge digital educator. In addition, she has co-authored a fabulous book called the HyperDoc Handbook. If you haven't checked it out, you definitely should. And there is a wonderful companion website called hyperdocs.co, where they have a page titled Teachers Give Teachers, and it does exactly what it sounds like. It encourages teachers to share things they're creating and use creations that have been posted and shared by other teachers. So the whole goal is to inspire and encourage this culture of sharing, which I absolutely love. So I am really excited to welcome Lisa. I have known you for, gosh, has it been seven, eight years Long time. Yeah, Yeah. long time through the Q community. So I want to give you a chance to introduce yourself, Lisa. So Lisa Highfill is talking with me today about balance. And I'm hoping to cover everything from thinking about the way we design lessons to assessments to kind of that work-life balance, all of those pieces, and maybe even hit balance from the perspective of parenting. Yeah, that sounds good. In your role as a technology integration coach, what are the aspects of teaching, teachers' roles, responsibilities, what have you, where you feel like they're really struggling with this idea of balance or the what aspects of their roles and responsibilities do they seem to struggle with balance or do you hear about from your perspective as a coach? I, I think um, the number one thing is um, when... You know, I started by telling you that I feel like I'm a connector these days. Mm -hmm. And I almost feel like an interpreter sometimes um, of, you know, sometimes we'll we'll get a directive from the district, like, okay, we're focusing on MTSS this year. Mm -hmm. And people um, or teachers, I find, um, a lot of people in general, take things very literal, you know, because mm-hmm. it's their job um, and they'll, they'll, it's very black and white. And they told us that we have to do this. And how can I possibly do more now? You keep adding to my plate. And so what our focus was, was to really help teachers synthesize the meaning of all of these initiatives your district is asking of you around the idea of lesson design. Because you're right, you can't keep adding these as individual, I always think of it as food, <laughs> like individual entrees on your plate. Right. How can you integrate all of it together for a meaningful lesson? And when we start to point it out that way, um, people stop taking it so literally and start thinking about it um, in terms of their craft that they've been building for years, um, that they've been naturally doing these things. So sometimes we're just, I'm, I, don't mean to say that I have the uh, power to give permission, but sometimes it's just a matter of telling people, you can do this. You have permission to look at it this way and to make that judgment. Yeah. And we respect your professionalism um, to to do that. And then what you do, staff, you know, is like, <laughs> try it out. And if that doesn't make sense to you or it's not working or kids' needs aren't being met or you're seeing um, this um, needs to be adjusted, then make those adjustments. And so being that scientist in your own classroom and really studying the kids while you're 
teaching. I know it's one more thing to do, but um, that's that mental gymnastics. I think we um, can have that space and time in the classroom to be able to step back and study how is this learning affecting kids? Oh, absolutely. I am always encouraging teachers, think about your classroom like a laboratory. This is a space for you to experiment, for you to be an observer, for you to learn what is working for them and what's not. Because, you know, there is that feeling of just an initiative overload. There are so many districts that have just like endless initiatives. And to be quite frank, from a teacher perspective, half the time, I think we feel like, okay, we get on board. We want to be team players. We want to make it happen. And then there's really no follow through. There's no support. And then we're on to the next initiative. Yes. As coaches, you're so right. It it becomes our responsibility to help teachers connect the dots. So it doesn't feel like, okay, take everything you used to do off of your plate and do this very different thing. But instead, what is this new thing? How does it relate to what you've done? How can you retain what you've done that's always worked, that you've enjoyed, that kids have responded to, and then work in this other element or figure out how it can complement what you already do? And I think sometimes as as well-meaning as district leaders can be and as good intentioned as initiatives can be, they feel very disconnected and they end up do, they feel like a burden because we're already so kind of overwhelmed by all of the other things that we have to do just on a daily basis as educators. Well, and um, it comes down to that work of of lesson design. And as a tech integration coach, I have a little bias about (laughs) Um, bringing in uh, some tech. And and even though our workshops are not tech driven, we model and we package our workshops using tech in order to really um, let them experience this seamless integration that frees up time and space in your classroom where tech can be used only when it's a solution to this dilemma of making it all happen in your classroom. So for me, the number one um, dilemma I always had was how do I get out from the front of the classroom? Yep. How do I relieve myself from the um, doing all this input of knowledge? And how do I, actually, you've really inspired me in this too. How do I stop doing all the work? Yes. yes. Uh, your keynote at Q was, I, I, I just can't stop thinking about it, about how we're working way harder than our students are working. And if you find yourself doing that, how can you turn that around? How can you shift that? And it comes down to, and I keep going back to lesson design, it's how we're delivering our instruction and how students are experiencing it. Yeah. And one, I wonder if you encounter this as a coach. One of the things that has been fascinating for me, because my experience integrating technology has been that it has allowed me to shift roles from that you know, fountain of knowledge, that disseminator of information, the orchestrator of the lesson to much more like we've talked about before, like the architect of the learning experiences, right? You you construct these opportunities for kids to discover, for kids to explore, for kids to make meaning because ultimately those experiences are so much richer for students, but they do require on the front end that intentional design, that creativity and time to put together a lesson that allows the kids kids to make the meaning so that hopefully during the lesson, we can sit next to kids and we can coach them and we can work with them. But I work with a lot of teachers who push back and they're like, that's a lot of time. That's a lot of prep. And I just feel like if your concern is it's too much time to prep and prepare for a dynamic lesson, 
what what are you spending your time outside of school doing? And are there ways that we can reimagine those pieces? So you have more time and energy yes. for the design. Yeah, I think it's, um, you've got me thinking uh, when you uh, did your keynote about what is stealing your time? What is taking up all your time? Mm-hmm. And is that really the best for learning in your classroom. I think about that in the classroom too. Um, And that's uh, what steals your FaceTime with kids. And because FaceTime with them is really the most important. And to look at practices that were stealing my time, like daily bite. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Daily bite or DOL, they call daily oral language in the classroom. Oh, I did DOL in the first Uh, five years of my career, Lisa. Oh yeah. And I kept thinking, because um, I was too cheap to make Xerox copies for everyone. <laughs> so I'd put it on the overhead projector and then the kids would write the sentences down. And I was so confused. I'm like, well, do I have them write them down wrong and then edit them? Or yeah. do I have, and then I'll the time, it. It, yeah, the time it took to um, go over every sentence. And I think what a waste of FaceTime with these kids. How can I make it more authentic and actually reach all the learners in my room. And so I don't have to do that for every lesson all day long. I can just start to solve one problem at a time. And I really emphasize that with teachers I work with, that just start with one thing. And it doesn't even have to be in a big long, you don't have to get a lesson plan out and do your old you know, days of lesson planning, but rethink that practice and say, is it really um, getting to what I wanted it to get to? Is it really applying? Are they now taking those um, you know, grammar lessons and applying it in their writing. Yes. And if it's not, then you've got to change the way you're delivering that instead of saying, Oh, these kids, they just want to get the work done fast. They just want to get the right answer. They just want to get a grade. How much, how many points is it worth? So we talk a lot in our district about feeding the beast. (laughs) And are we feeding the beast? Um, You know, are the kids just doing what we've asked them to do? Oh my gosh. As of our lessons. Yeah. They come in and sit down and wait to be told what to do. That's because we've asked them to do that. We've conditioned them to expect that that's what's going to happen. And it's so funny. I love this idea of what is stealing your FaceTime. If we start thinking about our lessons like that, I literally just finished coaching for a couple days in a row. And I wrote this tweet just yesterday. And I, it said something along the lines of trim the fat in your lessons and Uh get more time. And as an observer, you see so many, and it's not that there isn't value in like a bell ringer or a welcome routine or something where you have to take role and kids are doing a little activity to get started. But I often will see those like a DOL become like 15 minute monsters where it just doesn't look like the best use or feel like the best use of that really precious time we have with kids. So I love that idea of what are we doing? Is it adding to our relationship with kids? Is it engaging them? Or is it really kind of stealing the opportunity we have to connect with them in potentially a 45 minute period or whatever it is we have with them in a given day? Yeah, those minutes are precious. So precious. I would encourage teachers to stop and think about what are those norms, routines, tasks that steal your face time with students? And do you design lessons with the goal of connecting with your students and really supporting their individual development? Because if designing lessons requires time and that feels like a big ask for teachers, my messaging would be to encourage you to think about what are those tasks you're taking home, communicating with parents, 
tracking student progress, providing feedback, grading student assignments. Is there an opportunity to shift some of those current tasks that we're taking home into the classroom and either share the responsibility of those tasks with students or do those tasks with students sitting right next to us. Because I think the goal of our lesson design needs to be that we are trying to maximize our minutes with students and getting as much face time as possible to support them. I think um, instead of the other piece to this is when we start to look at learning in the classroom as a single layer and mm. not one that we can have multiple layers in any lesson at any time to accomplish things like building community, like cooperation, like collaboration, like, you know, communicating with each other or if we can start to look at how can we build layers around that. So just shifting that um, daily bite activity to writer's notebooks and then your writing partner. And then I have time to confer with writers while they're talking to their partners about um, word choices and just go in with um, maybe one layer, but uh, of word choice, you know, in vocabulary, but you're actually building community in your classroom. You're building um, those relationships um, to meaningful work, authentic work. Uh, And most importantly, the kids doing the work, having it centered from them. I know for a long time I talked about um, building student agency through Mm -hmm. the, through my lessons, but actually Catlin, now I'm, I'm really been reading a lot more about um, Mm self-efficacy and really starting to um, look at the lessons. And you brought this up earlier when we were just talking about, are we stealing the aha moment from our students. Yes. Yes. Are we telling them everything and not letting them have that struggle of learning and sit in the struggle? I always tell the kids, I need you to sit in the struggle. This is what learning feels like. The minute it gets complicated, I don't want you to panic because you're going to, you know, you don't know what to do with this feeling. (laughs) This is normal. (laughs) This is what learning feels like. Sit in the struggle and and you'll get through this. Um, And um, are we, I always worry that are we um, rushing kids through um, and stealing that aha moment for them? And really, what are we telling them when we do that? We're telling them we don't believe in their own ability as a learner. Yeah. And I, you know, it's interesting because I think in some ways I question, is it, are we stealing the aha moment because we want to have it? We want to be the person who's like, hey, here's the answer. Here's the information, the whatever. Or are we stealing it because we are so myopically focused on getting through curriculum because we have a pacing guide or this is the expectation and not taking a step back and really realizing that we can race through all this curriculum. We can give students all this information, but if we don't allow them, like you said, to sit in the struggle, to engage in social negotiation, to work on constructing some of that knowledge with their peers very little of it is likely to stick. And so what was the point of racing through all of this curriculum and not giving them a chance to discover and explore and struggle and make mistakes and learn from those mistakes? And it's disheartening to think about how many kids are so uncomfortable. The minute they don't know the answer, they start to feel anxiety because of this very test you know, grade-driven culture that they're in, they don't feel it's safe to struggle and fail and, you know, take time to figure things out, which makes me nervous for them when I think about what's waiting for them outside of the school walls. 
Right. You know, um, I have actually, um, I, I don't know if you've read the work um, Albert Bandura did um, out of Stanford in like 87. And it's just, I have. So it's, it's just timeless actually, yes. because, and especially now with, um, I don't know if um, you're seeing this where you are, but um, just the increase of anxiety and depression amongst yep. our students. Um, where our students, it's a high performing district. Um, a lot of kids go to college in our district, or there's a lot of pressure to, there's a lot mm -hmm. of pressure for AP classes. Um, and uh, we're finding that um, if they go through and they think it's about just accomplishing tasks in order to get a grade, and they're not really looking at building that efficacy for themselves, um, they're not actually building some foundational skills for independence, you know, in, in their life. And I, I, I really go back to that. Uh, how, how am I stealing that from them? And it, it actually goes back to being a mom too. <laughs> and I think uh, back to the days of teaching my kids how to tie their shoes. Mm. And when you're in a hurry and you got to get going and they're sitting on the floor and they can't tie their shoe and you just run over and like, I'll just do it for you. <laughs> yeah. That's and a great all analogy. of a sudden you have a seven-year-old who's wearing Velcro shoes because they never <laughs> took the time to tie their shoe. Um, and you're kind of stealing that struggle and that learn. And I'm not saying that <laughs> I have a solution to that because there were days where I'm like, all right, you're wearing your flip-flops right. because this is what it is today. We need to get this show on the road. Yeah. Right. Um, but I see that transfer that idea in the classroom. There are times where I'm teaching and I just have to put my hands in my pocket or behind my back and not rush over and rescue them. Um, my job, I always feel is how can I um, let them do that metacognition and understand that they're doing just the right thing to learn this. And if um, they can sit um, and think about it and ponder and have some skills, of how do I solve this? Um, that they, um, if they practice that more often, they start to um, build those kinds of skills that will actually eventually help them um, so much more. Um, they'll be able to recover faster yeah. um, from their failures. Um, they're able to um, not see themselves as this is permanent um, or it's a major setback. And it really starts to affect their um, confidence level, which will then affect that anxiety and, and that depression that we see often. Um, we, we tend to want to jump in and make everyone happy. And um, doesn't yeah. not always the best course of action. I was actually in a classroom yesterday in Palm Springs and I'm observing this teacher who's implementing a lesson we had co-designed. She's a math teacher. And what struck me watching her was she was moving around the room and working with individual kids and she would see like an issue or, a, you know, they had made a mistake or there was, they had a question. She would never answer the question. Instead, she would say, well, what about this? And Hey, Aaron, I know you knew how to do this. What do you think about this? So she was so skillful in asking questions and connecting learners and yeah. really allowing them to answer their own questions mm -hmm. and solve their own problems. And I thought, you know what? This is the this is the sign of a phenomenal teacher because it is so much easier, like you said, to swoop in, here's the answer, here, let me tie your shoes. Yeah, yeah. It is much more challenging to take a breath and help kids to kind of negotiate and problem solve on their own. But it was sweet because a few times I watched her do this and she did it repeatedly in the lesson. And a few times the kids, while she was still standing there, kind of came to the understanding, the conclusion, they figured it out. And just the brightness on their faces, that moment of like, oh, I just totally figured this out. Yeah. And you could see her. It was 
it meant so much to her, but it meant yes. so much to the kids. And I was like, man, I wish everybody could see what's happening in this room and the impact that it's having on learning. Right. Learning is a messy process. It takes time, and yet students are rarely afforded the opportunity to ask questions that they care about. Instead, teachers ask them to remember answers to questions that they didn't ask, they didn't research, and they don't necessarily care about. So I think what we need to ask ourselves is, how can we foster exploration and discovery in our classrooms? How are we creating spaces where students can fail? And how do we balance the time it takes to make meaning with the pressure we feel to get through curriculum? Well, I live for the aha moment in the classroom. Yeah. I mean, it's a beautiful thing. Um, but you know what you said, it made me think, uh, I, I said my job is a connector amongst teachers, but in the classroom, to be a connector amongst the conversations and the learning in the classroom, how powerful that is to have that mental space to yeah. step back from the front of always explaining, mm-hmm. letting kids explore and discover and um, work through all of that. You have that opportunity to be that connector um, and swoop in and help somebody, mm-hmm. um, it, find the skills they need to keep going on that, not, um, do it for them. You know? Well, and I know, so you have written a book about hyperdocs. I yes. have to imagine that this book was in part inspired by your wanting to help teachers find more balance in the classroom in terms of intentional design, but also by creating these hyperdoc experiences, they also hopefully are freed up to use their time with kids in different ways. So I would oh, love for, for sure. you to tell us a little bit about what inspired that book and the what you were hoping the impact would be on the teacher and the student experience. I, I think it all came about from years of sitting in professional development, being told the what and the why and never given the how. And so in my classroom, as my own laboratory, I started mm-hmm. experimenting with technology to solve the how. And with Kelly and Sarah, we um, were all fifth grade teachers at the time. And we all started to share these ideas and these experiences and tweaking them and nudging them uh, to do exactly what you said is um, try to alleviate um, the way um, we were spending our time, whether it be in front of the room um, if, to solve a, um, solve a problem in the room. If I needed to pull a small group, how was I still going to let everyone else be doing something meaningful during that time? So we created HyperDocs, um, not as a program, not as a, a, a solution to everything, not as something to do all day, every day, but once in a while when I needed to get to um, a lesson that I really needed to stick uh, then we would design this lesson with a lot of intention and purpose in it. How can we build in that lesson um, with maybe a video tutorial with the instructions so that I don't have to keep answering those same <laughs> questions over and over again? And what I'll, do we do? Huh? <laughs> Where do I turn it in? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so I always write in really large letters, turn your work in here and put mm-hmm. a link. Um, and I always say to students when they ask the questions, I say, everything you need to know is right on the hyperdoc. I believe you'll be able to figure this out. And then I walk away and be like, oh, please, oh, please figure it out. <laughs> um, you know, to build some of that efficacy, um, the, to set them up for success, um, 
And actually to bring in some more active learning instead of passive learning. You know, we're seeing kids just come in and sit down and wait to be told. And, and this launches them um, from the get-go. One, one thing that's majorly important about HyperDocs um, that sets it apart from just a digital worksheet is the lesson design. Um, and I learned a lot of that from uh, Ramsey Masalam's work on cycles of learning. And yeah, big fan of Ramsey. Yeah, <laughs> we started um, working with the explore, explain, apply cycle, where kids explore content before we explain it. Yeah, and that was such a game changer to get um, the kids. Um, making meaning on their own through inquiry uh, versus being told. It's a big shift for them as learners. They didn't really love that. But we found that it was giving us more room to work with students with special needs or to work with newcomers in, right. in language, um, to work with our advanced students who needed some nudging to take it a little bit further. Um, exactly. And, and in the meantime, you're making connections with kids. So that was, that was big. Um, to be able to have an actual solution, a concrete solution. Um, not that you have to do it all the time or not that it's for everybody, right. but um, that it could be there for the lessons that you really want to stick. And when you when you work with teachers around HyperDocs, do you ever have any teachers push back against this idea of kids won't be able to do that unless I explain it, unless I provide this whole foundation? Because I, like you, think there is so much value in that peaking of interest, in that beginning struggle, so that when you do swoop in with some yeah. explanation or instruction, yeah. they're listening. But I do sometimes encounter teachers who don't think students will be able to do it unless they provide the information first. Yeah, I definitely um, have seen that. And then I ask them to try it. Actually, I um, have them, I do a, I put them through a demo lesson as a learner, really thinking about adult learning theory as well. Yes. And how we as adults explore in learning um, and how, how much we're able to make meaning of things. I try to get them to think about, so we oftentimes with Explore, we start off with a multimedia text set, which are not HyperDocs. They're, you know, the, um, the uh, choice boards or the, what, there's right. so many different names for them. Letting kids explore content and make meaning of it and then to collect their thinking that first formative assessment, that first check-in. We never thought that a hyperdoc would be, here, just go, you're on your own for the rest of the class period through right. the entire cycle of learning. We always, I always have to stop after that explore piece and to understand who got it, to what level they got it, and where can I go back and fix up their understanding in my explain portion? Or are they, do they totally understand this and can I take them to an advanced level or do I need to go back even further back in review because the class is really um, needs more of an explanation. I think it's improved the way my, I lecture too. I mean, because I, I like a good lecture. I think it's good for kids to listen as well. But it can be really focused because I've had them explore first and share back their thinking about what they learned. Now, sharing that back is not giving them 20 questions with a right. text set and right. having them answer that. That is actually really a hindrance to the thinking process there because you'll watch your kids and they're just trying to get the task done. Right. Completion. They're not actually sharing their thinking, their questions, their, their wonders about the topic. So that's a whole other topic about um, inquiry learning uh, that we could, we could talk for a long time about. But I think that gives me um, so much information that I can then build on 
And that can be uncomfortable for a teacher to think in the classroom on the spot. I'm now I'm studying the kids. I'm working with individuals and I'm trying to think about my next, <laughs> I'm thinking about the lecture and what do I need to get into to, to move forward in this lesson. Sometimes I just need to say, all right, we're going to do this tomorrow. It's the next right. day. Today well, was just the explorer. And sometimes the results of a formative assessment piece like that are going to show you that three kids over here need this and eight kids over there need something totally different in terms of the reteach and the scaffolding. And so, yeah, there is a degree of being nimble. But I think one of the things that I really like about hyperdocs and playlists and things like that is this opportunity when you are intentionally designing a lesson to also balance the parts of the lesson. Because one of the things that concerns me when I go into classrooms and I observe teachers is there is either there are students with computers or a Chromebook cart that never gets opened, or there are computers that are open the entire time. And for me, when I coach teachers, when I work with them, I really do emphasize, like, how are we balancing the online with the offline, the collaborative with the individual, the teacher talk with the student voice conversations? I'm not sure that a lot of teachers are necessarily thinking about those lessons, or or how am I designing it so that I'm balancing teacher assessment versus self-assessment and peer assessment, these these pieces, so that the lesson itself is not too heavy on one side of the equation or another. And I think if you're designing something like a hyperdoc experience, a playlist, or even in my case, using a blended learning model like a station rotation, how are we achieving that balance for kids in our design? Again, this brings us back to the importance of lesson design. As educators, are we designing lessons that strive for balance? So when I coach teachers, we talk about balancing the online with the offline, the individual with the collaborative, the teacher voice with the student voice. So think about those elements in your lesson and are you creating learning experiences that balance those elements? I think that's a, a really good point. And it's something uh, when when I'm working with teachers uh, creating hyperdocs, we always call it, um, it's like close reading your lesson design. <laughs> so let's go back in and look at the lesson in terms of on-tech, off-tech. Nice. And where do you think you can build in a little more balance because of how did your kids react last time with how much they were on the tech? Um, did you find them being distracted? Did you find them losing their attention span after 20 minutes? Mm -hmm. So how can we refine that portion of the lesson? Give them only eight minutes to explore that multimedia tech set. I would never give a half an hour for that because that gives the, they, they lose it after that. But if you give like eight minutes a day, exploring some content and um, then moving on in your lesson. That could, that could be a real solution. So then we have them look at their lesson, go back in and close read your lesson for um, how about the balance of student creation or student um, active learning versus passive learning where mm-hmm. they're um, consuming versus creating, you know, where's that balance in there? Yes. And then uh, Cal and our latest work we've really been working on is in the assessment piece which is such a challenging aspect of so many of our jobs. So I'm curious, what are you guys doing? So we're, we're looking at, um, at we're, we're doing so much with um, data analysis in our, in our um, district lately and, and looking at data in terms of um, 
how are kids doing? Um, who's getting it? Who's not getting it? And who's getting it at a high level? And mm-hmm. can you answer those questions when we're looking at the data um, from the work that kids are doing? And then thinking about how does that data drive our next lessons? Okay, so that's one start to it. So we close read then how does the data, that information about who got it, who didn't get it, like you just said, some are getting it, some aren't. So that's one step. But then the other piece, we really have to step back and go, how did I ask them to show me what they know? (laughs) And does that meet all learners? Is that really equitable? Because some students, if we're always asking students to show it through writing, Yep. That doesn't feel very equitable to me, where some people are, are very gifted in speaking versus mm-hmm. writing. And so why am I not giving them an opportunity to show what they know orally? Mm-hmm. And so I love the use of web tools at this point and giving that choice. So for example, I had a student um, that I was working with um, a couple of weeks ago and on paper, she had written out a poem and it was I was so worried for the student. I'm like, you couldn't read it. I mean, the sentences, the punctuation, the grammar, like I couldn't decipher her words from the writing. And if you looked at it, you would think that she's really at a much lower grade level. She's a couple of grade levels below. I asked her to do the same project using Adobe Spark video and publish her poem that way. And she used her voice and she used images and she used music. And at the end of the video, I'm in tears because it was so beautiful. (laughs) And her words were actually very gifted and the way what she decided to share in that poem. Um, Now, I'm not saying she doesn't have issues that we need to address in her writing. Right. But this girl is a talented, gifted storyteller and I would have missed it. And I keep thinking about that. How many other students are we missing their gifts? And why does everyone need to be able to show their gifts in the same assessment, the same format, that standardized test? Now, I I see the place for it. We can't avoid it. We have um, our district uh, mandates. But as a teacher, I am the architect. I can gather that by how I create the assessment, how I ask kids to show what they know and how I give them choice in that so they can self-select what is um, relevant to them personally, what, what is their way of sharing what they know. But that's such a mind shift as an educator because I meet plenty of teachers who would respond to our shared belief that students should have agency when it comes to deciding, not every time, but sometimes, how do I want to demonstrate my learning? Here are six different things that I can choose from, or if none of these appeal to me, I'm going to design my own and pitch it, a project pitch to my teacher. And some teachers push back and they're like, that's not fair. Everybody in the same class should do the exact same assignment. There's still that lockstep kind of one size mentality with a lot of teachers who don't don't know like how to how to deal with a bunch of different deliverables, a bunch of different products, and and to manage that. It, and it's hard as a coach, as a speaker, to to navigate those situations when those teachers push back and say that's not fair. And I'm like, but is it really fair to expect every single kid to demonstrate their knowledge, their understanding in the exact same way? Exactly. I think um, we are. Um we are also the beast in feeding the beast. So we are taught that this is how you do it. This is how we need this data. You need to give these assessments. But if we're going to take all this time, we, we talked in the beginning here about maximizing face time with kids and all this energy we put into this work. Are we really 
getting back what we what our goals were are our objectives really being met with those tests and if you try it in a different way I think it will convince you and you'll, I actually feel really bad for the kids that I didn't give an option to show me in a different way. Now I, I go back and think about some of these students who um, had test anxiety, who were not test takers, who um, for whatever reason um, uh, were not showing it in, in that way. And, and did I really miss their gifts and um, opportunities to help them um, to be a learner with what they have uh, what their skills are and to grow from there um, in terms of um, teachers trying to, to trying to do that i'm going to push it one step further with this why are we just having them uh, do things to get through it and then to, for us to grade it i think that cycle is dangerous where we we lecture we assign we assess we move on but and, and i keep going back to your words we're doing all the work so now mm. i'm trying to do it where Instead of doing um, just a five-paragraph essay, which is very important, kids, sure, do it on paper. Let them publish it on Adobe Spark page and then curate those on a wakelet and then have everyone in the class explore each other's. Yeah. And now everyone is taught by their classmates instead of me having to be the teacher, having students create the content for an authentic purpose. And be the eyes and be the feedback and the voices. Yeah. I totally agree. And, and your point about kind of the inflexibility. I think of myself as my early teaching career as very inflexible. Like I remember making all of my students annotate every single thing we read for academic purposes. <laughs> and then every semester I had this evaluation form and I asked them what they liked, what they didn't like, uh -huh. how it was going. And you know what they didn't like? They didn't like annotations yeah. for years and years. But I was so inflexible. I was like, nope, annotations are a must. And then yes. I remember maybe it was five or six years ago, I, I took a step back and I was like, okay, I wonder if I gave them an option. You can do traditional annotations. We'll, we'll learn how to do that. You could be a, you could do a dialogic journal or sketch notes were starting to become really popular. I was like, or you can do sketch notes. And it was so interesting because once I introduced the three strategies and I said, you choose what works for you, I never heard about that routine being an issue ever again. And I think about how much I've evolved in my own practice. And I do feel bad for those early students, but you know what? They still find you on Facebook and there are things they loved. So all we can do as educators is just be committed to continually right. grow and improve and we just do our best, you know? You know, one thing I think um, teachers could do and, and could start like right now to, to try this out mm -hmm. is if they could just put uh, at the end of their assessment that they're required to do, if they could just put the question, what else do you know that I didn't ask you? I love that. I know. So simple, but like so powerful. Yeah. And I think, I think that goes back to me as a learner in school where <laughs> I felt very misunderstood as a student. Uh, I felt I didn't, I wasn't able to show what I really knew um, mm -hmm. on the types of tests I was given. So I felt really frustrated. Like nobody gets it. Nobody yeah. gets what I want to tell them. Nobody's asked me the right question is what I thought. Like and I, I know so much, I, know. I can't share it. <laughs> well, you picked everything I didn't know. <laughs> so if you even just tried to do a, an assessment like that, just once, I mean, if we're talking about, you know, we talk about balanced literacy. We talk about a lot of balance in our lives, but try out balancing your assessments and get, why don't you just give that test question? Show me what you know about this topic we just learned. 
That's a great suggestion. You know, as teachers and the grading, I think about the grading and it is such a talk about our work-life balance. Um, it is the hardest part of the job for me, I always felt, was the grading piece. Um, but if think if you have multiple different kinds of pieces to grade, different yes. videos, different you know, slide presentations, different products um, that so are unique to, unique to the person. Um, and I think it would show so much more than even the standard we were assessing. It shows into the heart of the student and who they are as a person. It just yeah. continues that connecting, um, which is is everyone says the number one reason why we do all this is to connect and to make connections. Absolutely. Like we're in it for the kids, but yeah. so often they get kind of lost in the shuffle of everything else that we're trying to do. And yeah. um, so I know, I can't remember where I saw it, but you said something along the lines about how teachers, you know, this profession is one in which it, it can just follow you everywhere and it's very hard to turn off. And so I wonder as a way to kind of wrap up this conversation, do you have advice that you give teachers or tips that you use in your own practice where you're able to kind of turn off the workload at times when you leave school so that you can hopefully enjoy some of that time outside of the classroom to pursue passions and relax and recharge. What are those things that you do or those tips that you offer teachers? You know, I think it goes back to what we were saying about giving permission. And we need to learn that to do that to ourselves, mm -hmm. give ourselves permission to unplug to, uh, sometimes it's a matter of letting my computer run out of battery. Is that yeah. silly? <laughs> Just let it die. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or my phone, or I can't find it or, um, because it's hard because it's a job that there's always something to do. You always can do something. It never is a done, you're never done with your work. So it's a matter of saying, I'm taking a break and stopping at this point. And, and having that kind of permission. Um, and again, um, to find what brings you energy in your life. For yes. me, I'm a super lesson plan nerd and I like designing lessons. Me too. <laughs> it brings me, it's being creative like that brings me the energy to do the work. But even that I have to stop after a while. And it, it, you know, for me goofing off and everyone non-readers are like, are you kidding me? It's always me finding a book and then hiding in the house somewhere <laughs> where no one can find me <laughs> and I'll disappear. And I'm like under the covers with my book, you know, so like leave me alone. Cause I just want to read, um, adult books once in a while. <laughs> you yeah. know, not well, and I think your, your essays. point about permission and also placing value on this time that we carve out for ourselves. You know, one of the things that I remind teachers of is when I binge watch Stranger Things or I watch Game of Thrones and then I would go in and teach, I had this point of commonality with students where all of a sudden I was like this actual person who watched shows and knows what they're talking right. about. Or I read an amazing book and I love YA literature. So I'd read young adult literature and I'd be, I'd bring a book in and I'd just be like, oh my gosh, I just finished this. Who wants to borrow it? Or I just go to sleep on time and then I'm rested and I can have more patience for those kiddos who didn't get great night's sleep. But I don't think we sometimes think to value how much when we feed ourselves, we actually are going to end up feeding our practice and our students and giving, having more to give to them. And then being there for your kids. I know you've got young kids at home I and I'm going to warn you. <laughs> 
they're gonna leave. <laughs> I know you just le- your last one just left, yeah. right? Well, it's the second year at college, oh. so we've had now this is our second year of no kids at home, and uh, just I think back on those years about balancing that with um, having the kids at home and being there with them um, yeah. through all that uh, chaos and, and fun and um, uh, in the work that that is, and now to how quiet my house is. I cannot even imagine. It's lovely. And if you don't, if you don't nurture <laughs> that relationship awesome. with your partner, though, <laughs> yes. and then those kids leave, you're going to be looking at this person thinking, yes. "Hey, what right. do we do now?" So there's another tip: nurture your relationships yes. because soon it's just going to be the two of you. Well, and that's where those uh, outside passions and, and interests come in. Start Absolutely. building those with your partner. So our teacher tip today comes from Andy Jackson, who recommends that teachers with a short period during the week, so often this is the wonky Wednesday schedule, or maybe you have an all-period schedule on Monday, that if you have a short period, you break routine and you dedicate that short period each week to allowing students to pursue a passion project. So students are working on something they're really interested in, it's very student-driven, very student-centered, and then the teacher can use that time to conference, give feedback, sit with students and assess student work so that they're taking a little less home, but they're also creating space for students to pursue something they're really passionate about. So thank you for the tip, Andy, and hopefully it will help other teachers find balance. I am always looking for teacher tips. So if you do something that makes your life just a little bit more manageable, whether that's in your teaching practice or in your life outside of school, I would love to hear about it. You can find me on Twitter at Catlin underscore Tucker or on my blog at CatlinTucker.com where you can post a comment. Thank you to StudySync for producing and sponsoring this podcast. StudySync is committed to helping teachers find balance in their lives by providing them with a robust multimedia ELA platform that simplifies lesson planning, automatically differentiates tasks for learners at different skill levels and language proficiencies, and blends online and offline engagement to help students develop as thinkers, readers, writers, and speakers. StudySync's most recently released product, Sync Blasts, expands the company's scope to include an emerging supplemental digital inquiry solution for social studies and science classrooms. Visit studysync.com for more information or visit the link in our show notes. By the way, the views expressed in this podcast are my own. Thanks again for listening in.